0: Before we start today's podcast, we'd like to announce a new initiative. For each episode, we'll have a community partner, a small organisation whose work we admire and would love you to support. Uh, Considering the theme of today's show, we wanted to highlight the Police Accountability Project that's part of the Flemington and Kensington Community Legal Centre. The project takes the lead in Victorian police accountability law and strategies, supporting young and vulnerable clients from the complaint stage to litigation, along with ongoing systemic advocacy. The project includes the Peer Advocacy Outreach Project, Public Interest Casework, Victoria's First Police Complaints Clinic and Strategic Law Reform and Advocacy Work Against Racial Profiling and for the Independent Investigations of Police Misconduct. One-off or monthly tax-deductible donations are welcome and can be made via givenow.com.au slash fkclc or you can search for police accountability project, and find the donation link there. Now, on with the show. Uh, hello, and welcome to episode four of Have You Got That Right? The podcast of the Castan Centre for Human Rights Law, based at Monash University. I'm your host, Marius Smith, manager of the Castan Centre.
1: And I'm Sarah Joseph, Director of the Caston Centre.
0: Today's our second special interview edition of the podcast where we'll be chatting with Kevin Miles who's visiting from the US as part of our Morris Blackburn Visiting Activist Program to speak at our annual conference this Friday 21 July and if you're listening to the podcast before then, tickets are still available.
1: Kevin Miles is the Southeast Regional Field Director for the National Association for the Advancement of Coloured People, the NAACP, the US's oldest and largest civil rights organisation. In this role, Kevin provides training, guidance and assistance to more than 600 active units throughout the states of Alabama, Florida, Georgia, Mississippi, North Carolina, South Carolina and Tennessee. During his tenure on on the national staff, Kevin has played an integral role in many high-profile campaigns for justice. Kevin Miles, welcome to the podcast and welcome to Australia.
2: Thank you guys for having me.
1: And so look, we might just kick this off by asking you a little bit about your background and how you found your way into the NAACP.
2: Um, An interesting story that I'd I'd like to share with you, just as as some background. When I was about nine years old, uh, my brother was 11. We lived in Cleveland, Ohio, which is a big snow state. Um, Something had happened, and the police were chasing somebody who committed some crime, and they ran through our yard, left footprints in the snow. Um, The police came to our door, and they literally kicked the door in. Now, my uncle was there at the house to visit, to spend some time with my dad, and so my brother and I were sitting at the kitchen table. The police came in, and they called my father every name imaginable, and they demanded to see all of their shoes, and they they told us that if anybody's shoes were wet, you know, they were going to jail. Um, Now, my father, like I said, I'm nine years old. In my mind, my father was like a superhero, you know. But I watched them humiliate my father, and humiliate my uncle, and made they made them go around the house and take all of the shoes out of all of the closets and pile them up in the kitchen, to see if they were sufficiently wet to justify taking them to jail. And when they weren't, they didn't apologize. They didn't do any of that. They just left. Um, now, again, thinking that my father was like a superhero in my mind, I imagined that something you know he would. There would be some act of retribution. They they messed with the wrong guy this time. But no, what what actually happened is my father calmly put all the shoes back in the closet. And that imagery of my father uh, having been humiliated and put those shoes back in the closet is something that I remember to this day. I mean, I've never shaken mm-hmm. that image. Um, and we called various organizations for help at the time, and we weren't able to get any. Mm-hmm. So, for my entire life, I've been animated by one singular ambition, and that is when something horrible happens, there should be someone you can call, and the person who you call should know what they're doing <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and be able to fix it. Yeah. Um, so, there are any number of things that I could have done with my life. I've, certainly, I've had a couple professional careers. Before I joined the staff of the NAACP, I spent 20 years volunteering for the organization and doing it for free before I was asked by our previous president, Ben Jealous, to come on staff. But uh, this is the only thing that I've ever wanted to do, is to solve these types of problems.
1: And how long have you been with the NAACP?
2: Uh, About 25 years. Like I say, about 20 years as a volunteer, five years on staff.
0: Did you, outside of that one incident, what was your experience, Jim, more generally, of the police as you grew up? Um, None were positive. Yeah. You know?
2: Uh, Just some interesting uh, stories. I remember a time uh, we had a large shopping mall in my neighborhood called Randall Park Mall. And at one point, the police had as, I don't know if it was official or unofficial policy, but whenever they saw young black kids in the mall, they would stop us and make us show them how much money we had, take it all out of our pockets, and they would count our money and decide whether or not they thought we had enough money to shop in the mall. And it was totally arbitrary. So if we wanted to go to the mall and go shopping, you literally had to sneak in the mall, get around the police, find someone at a store who was willing to give you a bag, just an empty bag, so you could look like you were shopping. So that maybe the police wouldn't stop you. Because yeah. if they did, and you pull out your money, if you had fifteen dollars, on that day fifteen dollars might not be enough. Mm-hmm. And they'd walk you out and you know, maybe you have twenty dollars. Well maybe twenty dollars isn't enough. It was totally arbitrary. Mm-hmm. Um and then I remember a time a friend of mine, we were walking to the store and you know, he was he was a little rough around the edges, this friend. Yeah. Um So he gets into an argument with a guy. Uh, The guy he's in the argument with pulls out a gun. We run our separate ways. I go hide in the boiler room of an apartment building. I don't know where he goes. But finally, when I come out, I find him. It's the middle of the day. You know, someone called the police. The police come. Uh, So instead of them taking a statement, they literally spent maybe 10 or 15 minutes Mm -hmm. telling jokes about the way that we spoke. You know the slang that we used, which they thought was hilarious. But they never wrote a single word down. They took no statement about the fact that you know what—literally, someone just pulled a gun on us. They 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 couldn't care less. And they they ended our session by saying, and "This is a quote: Don't you boys go playing cowboys and Indians now?" Hmm. And they left. <laughs> you know. So uh, I, I didn't have many positive experiences, yeah. and those things compounded by the incident that happened uh, when I was nine years old have led me on this path.
0: Yeah. Um, it went, we might talk a little bit later about sort of economic justice and, and poverty and the, the intersection between the two, but um, it kind of struck me when I saw a celebrity, and I think it was Chris Rock talking one time about his engagement with police, and so this is a guy who's worth millions of dollars and everyone mm-hmm. knows him, and talking about how when he's arrested well sorry, when he's pulled over by cops, he, he puts his hands on the steering wheel and he thinks just don't make any sudden movements. And I thought, wow, even like even wealth, you know, doesn't protect someone like Chris Rock from that kind of suspicion.
2: And and you know, I am mature, you know, with grey hair on my face. Mm. But when I'm pulled over by a police officer, literally, I have to reconcile the fact that I could actually lose my life yeah. for something as small as, you know, I ran a, a stop sign recently mm. and the police officer pulled me over and, you know, and I was paralyzed with the idea that, you know what, this could be it. Mm. I mean, literally I, I could lose my life, uh, over something as simple as having run a stop sign, yeah. you know, um,
1: just, uh, I mean, another thing I read on that, uh, some people might know that I'm one of the sad people who few, who still plays Pokemon Go. And, and, when, and when Pokemon Go came out about a year ago, uh, I read there was a blog, but um, from someone in America, just saying, "Well, if I played this game and was just wandering around with my mobile phone in certain neighborhoods, right, I could get shot."
2: Yeah, and okay. and you know, and the the real tragedy of that um, is when we've seen cases of people who were totally innocent, committing no crime, unarmed, who were murdered, either by police or by ordinary citizens, Um, sympathy has not accrued to the person who was killed.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: Sympathy has accrued to the killer. Mm -hmm. We saw when Trayvon Martin was killed, uh, there was a GoFundMe account set up for George Zimmerman, Mm -hmm. uh, the killer of Trayvon Martin, who raised hundreds of thousands of dollars for his defense, Mm -hmm. You know, when Mike Brown was killed, the officer set up a GoFundMe account and raised hundreds of thousands of dollars for his defense. So, you know, it is jarring uh, in ways that are hard to articulate, you know, as the father of a, you know, 20-year-old young African-American male, that if something were to happen to him, Mm -hmm. even if he were totally innocent, Mm -hmm. um, he would not be given the benefit of public sympathy. There would be... A generalized assumption that no matter what the circumstances he must have caused his own death and the killer must be worthy of compassion and that's that's hard to wrap your mind around
0: yeah
1: those killings though you mentioned Mike Brown and Trayvon Martin was earlier than that mm-hmm. uh, they have definitely sparked a reaction the Black Lives Matter um, movement and so on much as their horrible incidents, I I think it's fair to say they're not new, especially, you know, you've even spoken about your own experiences. What was it about those, I mean, mean, they did spark something, they did spark a reaction, and so why then, why now?
2: When when I was growing up, um, perhaps the most unbelievably racist event from the telling of history was uh, Emmett Till. This young man who was killed for the crime, quote unquote, of having winked or whistled at a white woman Um, and the fact that no one was held to account. We saw the passage of a law called Stand Your Ground. It was pushed by a group called ALEC. Who is is uh, would I've be worthy seen, of their own I've podcast? Actually, <laughs> the American seen, Legislative Exchange Council.
1: I've heard, I've heard John Oliver on Alec, and anybody mm-hmm. listening should <laughs> actually find John Oliver on Alec. Yeah. And, oh yeah, and I, <laughs> they they're worthy I of maybe their own Kevin podcast. Kevin Miles on Alec?
2: Yeah, because it is it is just uh, just an abhorrent organization. Uh, but the Stand Your Ground legislation, basically, what it does is it says that uh, if someone Is in fear, you know, and has a reasonable fear for their life or their safety, they can react with force, even deadly force. And that may not seem controversial until you you (laughs) add in the fact that a person who asserts stand your ground is immune from prosecution, Mm -hmm. right? Which creates, in a strange way, a presumption of reasonability. Because in a stand your ground case, the other person is generally dead, <laughs> right? So they can't, they can't say what happened. There is no alternative mm-hmm. set of facts. Mm-hmm. I am the killer. The other person's dead. I say I had to do it because I was afraid for my safety. No one can contradict that because I killed the other guy. And if the police can't disprove it on the scene, I am then immune from prosecution. Mm-hmm. So what happened with Trayvon Martin is George Zimmerman, who had actually studied Stand Your Ground in his criminal justice class, asserted Stand Your Ground. He said, yes, I had a gun. Yes, I followed Trayvon Martin around his neighborhood. But at some point, I turned around and was walking back to my car, and then inexplicably, Trayvon Martin jumped out of the bushes and attacked me and I had to kill him. Uh, The police, not being able to disprove that, made a public statement saying that no one would be charged. That was what sparked the fight in Sanford, Florida. Uh, And in fact, when that happened, the city manager in Sanford, Florida is a man by the name of Norton Bonaparte. Um, And I knew Norton because Norton had interviewed to be the city manager in Wichita, Kansas, at a time when I was the branch president in Wichita, Kansas, and I was on the selection panel that did not select him. (laughs) So uh, we took a contingent of people to go and meet with the city manager to talk about the fact that, you know, uh, absolutely someone has to be charged. this This would replicate the Emmett Till case if this young man went to the store, was followed around by an armed man, shot and killed. The police came. The killer is standing there with the gun. And he still gets to go home and no one is charged and, you know. um, But at the time, they still felt, well, they were constricted by the law. No one would be charged. And so that started the protests. Mm -hmm. Um, And and even when people say Black Lives Matter, which is more of a mantra Mm -hmm. than than an organization. Mm. Uh, but the mantra is meaningful because what it asserts is that, you know, Trayvon's life should matter. It mm. should it should matter to someone that this was a child. Mm. This was a child who went to buy some candy and tea mm. to eat while he watched a football game, and he was murdered in his own neighborhood. I it's,
0: it's, it's so so I'm um, so wholesome too I mean it's not like like uh, that shouldn't matter but yeah. I mean this is just a kid buying candy I mean it's literally yeah. a child buying candy and he's walking home and he gets killed yeah and you know and that
2: standard and the bri-
1: says it doesn't matter
2: yeah. right and, and, but that has replicated itself in case after mm-hmm. case that's the formula mm-hmm. right so when Mike Brown was killed in Sanford the officer says oh well I was afraid
1: mm-hmm.
2: well okay well if you're afraid then certainly you can kill him And he can't stand up for himself because he's dead. Mm -hmm. Well, (laughs) even with Philando Castile. You can see the whole thing on the Mm -hmm. the video. However, uh, the officer still asserts the same thing. Well, I was afraid. I thought he was reaching for something. Jordan Davis, uh, the the guy who shot, I think it was seven or eight shots into a carload of teenagers who had loud music playing, Mm -hmm. he said he thought he saw a shotgun in the car. Uh, And then when they searched the car, and of course there was no shotgun, there were no weapons in the car, Uh, the initial theory was, well, maybe they threw it out of the car. Well, no, they didn't throw anything out of the car because the car never left the parking lot. So, But he, he imagined the whole thing. And because he imagined the whole thing, and this is the really perverse thing about Stand Your Ground, he was only able to assert Stand Your Ground against Jordan Davis because he killed Jordan Davis. He was not able to assert Stand Your Ground against the other people in the car who he didn't kill. So he was convicted of attempted murder for the people he didn't kill and was not convicted for killing Jordan Davis because of Stan Well wow.
1: How
2: amazing is that? Yeah. Yeah. It's just mind-boggling.
1: <laughs> for uh, those yeah. listening, there's now a pause. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> we've <lift> our jaws off <laughs> the ground.
0: Thanks, Alec. <laughs> yeah. Um, Sarah mentioned Philando Castillo as the most recent of, you know, and, and we've seen. You know, since Trevon, it seems like there's just the same... We go through the same cycle. The police officer investigated, is or isn't charged, but then if they are charged, is ultimately found not guilty in most cases. And Philando is interesting because, uh, of course, it was caught on the dashboard cam. And there there has been a lot of pressure, particularly from the previous Department of Justice under Obama, um, to force settlements with police departments to deal with racist policing... There have been so many suggestions for for how we fix things, more training, more monitoring, better complaints processes, dash cams, body cams, and you still get something like Philando Castile. Uh, And and my question is, is it actually, is the police reformable, you know, in the American system? Is it so, is the... Is is it a structural racism that almost can't be ironed out? Is it just something that has to be dealt with for a vigilant prosecution, that kind of thing? What's your take on that?
2: Oh, it's reformable, Mm. but it it requires uh, that there be consequences. Mm. You know, I I don't buy the argument that it's a training issue because you don't have officers routinely killing unarmed white people. Mm. (laughs) <laughs> they don't have to be trained how not to kill unarmed white people. Yeah. Somehow they figured that out. Yeah. They bastard they that. <laughs> uh, it's only unarmed black people mm. that they have difficulty with. Mm. Um, and you know, it's it's not improving because no one is held accountable for it. There's case after case after case, and you know, it, it, there's always the same result. Um, there needs to be some legislative reform uh, that closes. Those loopholes, You shouldn't be able to simply say, I was afraid, and then that be your get-out-of-jail-free card. Mm-hmm. If you are unable to demonstrate that you were in real danger, you shouldn't be able to claim that, you know, danger made you do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Oscar Grant was shot in the back in a train station while handcuffed. Mm-hmm. What were you afraid of? Yeah. You know, Philando Castile told them that he had a gun, mm-hmm. that he was authorized to have. He complied. He was in the passenger seat. He hadn't done anything to be pulled over, except that the officer said his nose looked similar to the profile of someone who he had seen earlier, yeah. and and he was still murdered. So if you if you aren't able to demonstrate that there was some real danger, then then there ought to be a consequence for it. And if there were a consequence, then I, I suggest that people would would behave differently. Yeah,
1: um, I might uh, just butt in for the. Um, to just to just say that um, overnight, uh, just before we were recording this podcast, we have found out that um, an Australian lady has been um, shot by the US police in Minneapolis. So I should explain to the listeners that we are not... Um, at, at the time of recording, we're not really sure of the circumstances of why that's happened, um, but that none of that changes, you know, what you've been saying, that mm-hmm. when it comes to the actual numbers, um, it is unarmed black people that are, you know, that are generally the victims of, all, of, of police shootings and circumstances where, you know, it doesn't seem like there were any lives in danger.
2: But, but and, and this is, you know, tangentially related, but it's something that I think is important. Uh, more recently, police departments have been using these simulators, you know, and, and they, they offer uh, activists like myself the opportunity to come and, you know, experience these simulators so that we can understand, you know, the split-second decision-making that they have to, yeah. to to undergo. And you go into the simulator and, you know, figures appear on the screen and you have to decide whether or not you're going to shoot the figure or not. Uh, here's what I think is interesting about these simulators, right? So you go in and you're in the simulator for 45 minutes or so and you, you come across multiple situations where, you know, if you don't fire your weapon, something terrible will happen yeah. to you. Now, the reality is, you could spend 20 years on the police department and never actually have to pull out your weapon against anybody. You know, if 45% of the people who you encounter are actually trying to beat you to death in the simulator, <laughs> then that's not an actual simulation of real life. It's like a video game. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and so what are we training officers on if we're telling them that, you know, you better be careful because the old lady with the shopping bag may have a you know yeah. a monkey wrench in there that she wants to beat you with. Yeah, you know we we have created a climate of fear with the police departments. Mm. We have created a situation where we have police looking at the neighborhoods that they patrol as enemy territory, as, as an us versus them, and it's an untenable situation. Yeah. So on the one hand, while we need con- we need real consequences for Bad actors. On the other hand, we need a, a return to sensible policing. Mm-hmm. You know, we need to dispel the notion that you know the streets are filled with bad guys and you are the only hope for humanity. Yeah. No, yeah. The, the streets are filled with ordinary people going to work every day. Yeah. Um, and you know, I, I don't know the circumstances of what happened with the, uh, the the Australian woman in Minneapolis, but I can tell you that just on the surface it seems like a part of a troubling trend where, you know, police are overreacting in more and more circumstances.
1: Do you think, is there any link possibly between that and the new equipment? Because I I gather that the equipment, that, that U.S. police are getting extraordinary equipment, almost like leftovers from the Iraq war and things that have been, you know, things that have been... Devised for wartime, not for peacetime policing. Mm-hmm. And I gather that some of this equipment is, is you know, being used by police now.
2: Well, I think that the militarization of police feeds the mindset that, you know, the us-versus-them mindset. Uh, you know, I spent a few years in the Army. Uh, I was in Iraq during the, uh, the first Iraq war. I was in Panama during the deposition of Manuel Noriega, and the rules of engagement that we had were far more stringent, apparently, than the rules of engagement that the police department has. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know, I was in Panama when the Panamanian Defense Forces took over a customs port. We were not able, we were not allowed to point a weapon at anyone unless they had a weapon in their hands raised above their waist pointed at us. The police department are under no such restrictions, you know, because somehow they are able to, you know, they choked a man to death who was selling cigarettes, (laughs) you know, while, you know, from behind. So there was nothing that he could do. You know, they shot a 12 year old kid, Tamar Rice, up in uh, Cleveland, Ohio. They shot uh, a man who was in Walmart in uh, Dayton, Ohio, John Crawford, who was buying a BB gun, who was on his cell phone carrying the BB gun to go and purchase it. (laughs) You know? So there are no rules of engagement. Uh, But, you know, to, to, to keep militarizing police and giving them, you know, weapons of actual war, giving them the uniforms of soldiers... Uh, and sending them out into neighbourhoods and communities as though they were patrolling in Fallujah
0: only feeds that same mindset that I think is so problematic. So if you're African-American and you do survive your interaction with the police, you still find yourself five times, or give or take, more likely to be in prison than a white person. Uh, And at the same time, over the last 30-odd years, the prison uh, rate generally has skyrocketed. So, uh, by one report, twenty-five percent of the world's prisoners are in America. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are the trends that, that kind of led to that? Just really briefly, and and and, can you talk a bit about the kind of consensus that began to emerge over the last few years between sort of liberals and conservatives for the need to roll back? Well, let me let me tell you an interesting story. Uh, when I was when I lived
2: in Wichita, Kansas, I was a part of the community corrections board. Uh, And we were a board of law enforcement, legislators, activists, and whatnot, who were exploring alternatives to incarceration. And there there was one uh, alternative that uh, was championed by a guy named Mark Masterson, who was over our uh, criminal justice program for the county. And it it was very promising, and it was an intense supervision process. Right, they used some very detailed uh, questionnaires and tests to determine the likelihood of recidivism uh, for someone who was arrested. And if there was a low likelihood of their recidivism, then instead of incarcerating them, that they would pair them up with someone who would basically help them break their, you know, break old molds and old patterns and help them move back to a more productive life and you know eliminate the risks of recidivism. As money got tight
0: mm-hmm.
2: and the Tea Party group came into power, Um, they decided that money spent on alternatives to incarceration was not money well spent. And interestingly enough, as we were defending the program in the legislature, there were numerous groups from tiny, small communities around the state that had prisons within their communities who were lobbying against alternatives to incarceration because the prison business is first and foremost a business. Mm. And they needed those prisons to stay full so that they could provide employment for those communities. So even though we knew that we had low-level, nonviolent drug offenders who were just filling jails, and there was a way to get them out, get them treatment, get them back into uh, a more productive life and back into society without uh, incarceration, there was a huge lobby that wanted as many bodies as possible because if they keep those jails full, well, then they can keep on hiring more guards, they can hire more cooks, they can hire more, you know, all these other folks. So, you know, that push, uh, and shamefully, we are quickly returning there because, as you guys know, uh, Attorney General Jeff Sessions has signaled that he wants to go back to mandatory minimums. Mm -hmm. He wants to go back to funding or, or the federal government working with private prisons, and private prisons are uh, just a, a total aberration because private prisons have to maintain a certain prison population as a part of their profit motive. So the Obama administration had moved the federal government away from working with private prisons. Jeff Sessions is already signaled He's going back to that. Uh, so they are ramping up this big multi-billion-dollar industry once more, which provides employment for small-town communities, yeah. at the expense of, you know, poor and disenfranchised African Americans who are then shipped around the country, you know, uh, to to fill those jails.
1: Uh, you mentioned Jeff Sessions, and yes. uh, just uh, just to ask, you know, I guess generally your reaction to his appointment. We won't ask about the the. the we won't use the T word, the T administration, right. but just uh, <laughs> just the uh, the Attorney General. What was uh, well, your reaction to this man?
2: I went to jail uh, protesting Jeff Sessions. Uh, that's a reaction. Yeah. It's a, that's <laughs> right. <It's> a bad <laughs> honor. That, that, was, that was a reaction, yes. We uh, went to his office and um, down in Mobile, and he refused to meet with us, and we sat in and, and waited for him to at least send someone, which he... Finally did, and he sent the police. And <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> there's a philosophy. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, so they came, and I think there were 11 or 12 of us that uh, got, a, got arrested and went to jail that day. Yeah. Uh, and actually, we were the second group. There was another group uh, that had gotten arrested there about a month prior. Mm. Um, so, you know, Jeff Sessions was inherently problematic from the start. You know, this is someone who had been picked to be a U.S. attorney decades earlier and was rejected then because of his history of racism. Uh, but, you know, under the new administration, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, apparently yeah. that's that's no longer uh, a
0: disqualifying yeah. factor. <laughs> no, no, they wouldn't have a run other people the administration. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, with Sessions, uh, what's interesting, too, is, is if you look at a, a lot of what Particularly Holder did and Loretta Lynch, it was kind of what you call executive power. You know, they were making decisions to exercise their power in certain ways, mm-hmm. and that that's kind of what seems to be really disturbing about Jeff Sessions. Like for example, his um, edicts to prosecutors to go for the uh, most serious crimes in every case, which is going to up prison sentences for people found guilty. Absolutely. You know, this is things that that, that Congress don't have a say over. And it it kind of, obviously, a lot of those gains that the DOJ made under the Obama administration were pretty ephemeral because of that lack of congressional oversight.
2: And, you know, we've seen this once before when uh, George Bush was elected, uh, W. We've had a long history in the NAACP of working with the DOJ particularly a group called the uh, CRS, the Community Resource Service. Uh, Whenever there are issues with police in communities, we can call on the DOJ. We've traditionally called on the DOJ, Mm and we've been partners in trying to piece things back together in those communities. In fact, after Trayvon Martin was killed, it was uh, us working with our counterparts in DOJ who were able to pull together all the meetings with the police departments and the sheriffs and everybody to try to to make some substantive change. Uh, In W's case, when he came in, he radically restructured the mission of DOJ CRS. Uh, And fearfully, that's what I think we are about to see once more, uh, where suddenly DOJ will no longer be available to do those types of things. Because from everything that we've heard from Jeff Sessions, uh, making sure that minority communities Are treated fairly in the criminal justice system does not seem to be at the height of his priorities. His priorities seem to be making sure that people are prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law, no matter what. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So, you know, unfortunately, I think that we are rapidly returning to that move to that that model, uh, and I anticipate that we will see a restructuring of the DOJ's mission when it comes to dealing types of issues
0: yeah yeah so i mean so we've talked about a couple of you know really big systemic issues in in american you know justice another systemic issue um, is voting rights Uh, and we've obviously seen you know a lot of efforts that are often at the state level to restrict the rights of people and particularly um you know people of color um, from voting elections. Can you tell us a bit about that and, and how you see that unfolding at the moment with the election of the Trump administration? The fight over voting rights uh,
2: is one that is near and dear to my heart uh, for a couple reasons. And, and the first, I will tell you, is like I spent a good number of years in Kansas. Uh, in Kansas, we you know, I had a gentleman by the name of Chris Kobach, mm-hmm. who eventually became the Secretary of State. Uh, Chris Kobach is significant in the voting rights fight because he is the architect of many of the most bizarre anti-immigrant bills around the United States. He was a gun for hire when, you know, Arizona 1090, the Papers, Please law, Mm. was drafted. It was Chris Kobach, who was the Kansas Secretary of State, who traveled to uh, Arizona to help them draft that law. Uh, Chris Kobach set up a a very bizarre system, thank God it was struck down by the courts, but a dual voter registration system in the state of Kansas that said, you know what, he wanted to request additional documentation and proof uh, of citizenship before someone would be allowed to register to vote far in excess of what was required under the uh, National Voter Registration Act of 1994. Uh, And because he had two separate sets of rules, He proposed that if you registered without providing his additional documentation, you would only be allowed to vote in federal elections, Mm -hmm. but you couldn't vote on any municipal elections or state elections unless you went through these additional steps. Those additional steps required that you provide a birth certificate at the time of your registration. And let me tell you why that's significant. Organizations like mine that go out and register voters, third-party registrars as it is, would basically be prevented from doing voter registration because the chances that someone is going to be walking around with a copy of their birth certificate in their pocket while they're at Woolworths is, is null and void. There's, there's no way, right? And if that person was not willing to provide you with a copy of their birth certificate at that time, you could not register them to vote. That was what it was all about. It was about cutting the numbers. Then we saw additional, and, and mind you, he's working with the Trump administration now, on a plan to, you know, nationally collect all voter data yeah. for everyone in the United States, mm-hmm. which, thank God, forty-four states have said no to.
0: Mm. And you know, it goes without saying that it's just profoundly undemocratic to stop people from voting. But it's also undemocratic in a in a more philosophical way. I mean, if you're looking at the electorate and the electorate's changing, you know, the Democratic Party and the Republican Party have never been static. Right. The idea is that they move. Mm-hmm you know, to cater to the, the, the wishes of the voters over, you know, and, and slow change over often over, and over right. decades. So it's like instead of doing that, we're going to kind of atrophy the, the electorate so that we can just maintain our beliefs and keep implementing the policies we want on the backs of the people we allow to vote. And if you
2: look at those efforts combined with the effects of the last round of redistricting, Mm. which created just so many safe districts for Republicans. You know, it it should not go without mention that the last three elections, Democrats won the popular vote. Mm. But that has not been reflected in state legislatures. That's not been reflected in the presidential election. So, you know, in a democratic society, when the majority of people can vote a certain way and still lose... Uh, that speaks to the fact that something is terribly wrong.
1: Yeah the gerrymanders I've seen are quite extraordinary. Oh, yeah. and there's uh, there's districts that are called things like, you know, Mickey Mouse and Goofy because that's actually <laughs> what they look like. Yeah. And ones where, you know, lines go down a highway where no one actually lives. Right. But in order to connect these two these two sort of neighborhoods. Um, I, I hear things uh, like this, and I and I give thanks for the fact that in Australia, this might surprise you, in Australia we have compulsory voting. I
2: wish. <laughs> I <laughs> wish. <laughs> Not a chance, I suspect,
1: in America, but it's actually no. compulsory here. So. Yeah.
0: Okay, so there's a couple of other kind of issues outside of the social justice and voting rights that I know that you guys at the NAACP are very, very interested in. One is economic justice, and, and how did, can you tell me how important you think the fight for economic justice is for African Americans in 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 the you know context of these broader fights, things like the fight for the fifteen dollar minimum wage, things like that.
2: You know, there there was a movement not long ago uh, where people were saying that we are the ninety nine, talking about the ninety nine percent of the population that of, of the working population. I, I I, I don't know where this is going, Mm. right? But we have moved so far towards a plutocracy where benefits accrue to the super wealthy. You know, if you look at the fight that we're having right now, ostensibly it's about health care, but it's really not about health care. The proposed health care bill is a capital gains tax cut disguised as a health care bill. And it would be a massive tax cut for the super wealthy. It is horribly unpopular. And that is totally irrelevant. (laughs) (laughs) You know, Mm. I I think at the last count, it has 17% approval in the population, 17% approval. And it's still going to pass. When you you think about that, that's that's shocking. Mm. But we've elected a billionaire president. And this billionaire president is hell bent on cutting his own taxes, which we have never seen. Yeah. And cutting the taxes of the billionaire class at the expense of everybody else. And meanwhile, you have people who are working for minimum wage who cannot afford basic necessities. Yeah. You know, you can work forty hours a week and still not be able to afford an apartment and food. Right, yeah. but at the same time, we're going to pass a retroactive capital gains tax cut at the expense of 22 million people's health care.
0: <laughs> you know, yeah. Uh, I, I just and kind it, of it so radically, also so that they can immediately remove those Obamacare taxes, but then move on to the next stage of using the savings from Medicare to cut more taxes. And
2: it's it's hard to imagine where this is going, but the the one thing that is totally clear is that the 1% really is not concerned about how we feel about (laughs) (laughs) the direction,
0: No, you know? And I'm really fascinated by um, the fact that in the United States, um, your local school gets about half of its funding from taxes on the district. Mm -hmm. So you live in a wealthy district, you just have more resources for your school. how how did how is that um, dealt with in America? Uh, how can it be dealt with to improve um, education, and how important is it that <laughs> fact that you know?
2: Well, let, let me tell you the the more salient issue for mm-hmm. me. Um, all around the country, where we have majority Republican legislatures, and, and and I'm not a partisan, but this is just an observation. We are seeing fights over the school funding formula, where, where legislatures are arguing that they're giving too much money to the schools. And, and it's always couched in some language about, you know, we need to get rid of the fraud, waste, and abuse, which is a, a smokescreen. Uh, there was an, a bank robber named Willie Sutton who was once asked, you know, well, Willie, why do you rob banks? And he said, because that's where the money's at. <laughs> right. <laughs> the last large pot of public dollars Is in the public school system so what we've seen in these large conservative Republican legislatures is that they have pushed these tax cuts you know under you know this idea of Laffer theory economics that you know if you just keep taxes super low it will create an economic Shangri-La businesses will come from everywhere and want to be in this low tax environment Mm -hmm. Which never actually works, right? Because when you have little to no taxes, you have poor schools, you have poor roads, and businesses don't want to relocate where they can't get an educated workforce, right? So it doesn't work. Uh, but once they've done that and they've bottomed out the, the taxes, then they have to find alternative sources of, of, of money. And the most attractive pot of money seems to be the public schools, so you see these pushes, and for, for I know you guys have watched as mm-hmm. the Trump administration brought in Betsy DeVos, yeah. who has never been a teacher, who has never worked in a public school, and has never attended a public school. Uh, but her push is she wants to move to this charter and private model, yeah. right? Uh, because, you know, right now, the public school funding is being raided. In all of these these uh, these legislatures and in, in all of these municipalities, mm-hmm. uh, and yeah. it is creating some very dire circumstances. Because what ends up happening when you go in and you start to tinker with the school funding formula, schools have very few choices as to how they deal with those those uh, spending cuts. What you see happening initially is they take the textbooks and they start to keep them longer. Whatever the replacement cycles are, they extend them. Mm -hmm. So suddenly you have children who are in a civics class or a social studies class who are reading from books that are 10 years old or maybe 14 years old or maybe 16 years old, so they're not getting current information. Mm -hmm. Uh, You start to increase your class sizes. And as you increase your class sizes, kids get less individualized attention, and as they get less individualized attention... Mm -hmm their uh, performance starts to suffer. You start taking out your supplementary services. My son went to a school in Georgia that didn't have a school nurse. Mm. So if a child had a headache, a bloody nose, anything, they had to go home because there was no way to take care of them there inside of the school. There were no services. Uh, Then they start playing with things like the definition of a highly qualified teacher. So they start bringing in paras uh, who are paraeducators who are not actually certified teachers and coming up with circumstances in which maybe they can teach classes because we can't actually afford a, a full staff of a, a full complement of highly qualified teachers you know the school district that I left when I was in Wichita Kansas experimented with maybe we can just shorten the school year yeah <laughs> let's cut out some time because we can't afford to keep kids here as long and all of this is done to make up for spending cuts which were made so that they could push tax dollars
0: back to the super wealthy. Mm, yeah, and and then the last bit of that is, and I think, in a in a, in a in a district like Detroit, for example, you know, then you make the administrators make impossible choices, and then you blame them for their incompetence. Oh, and, and then you sack them and you replace them, and you push the you pretend that it's and, about. And dollars. Betsy
2: DeVos should own that because the DeVos family. Played a direct hand in the, the so-called reforms that took place in Detroit, and they they gutted those schools. They gutted those schools because those reforms were never designed to provide better educational outcomes for those children. They were designed as cost-cutting measures and economic you know uh, machinations to do other things. But it was never about those kids, you know. So, uh, literally what we see in American education what we see in American education is nothing short of a tragedy because you know uh, I once heard it said that the formula for determining how many prison beds they need in America is based on 4th grade reading scores Mm. so what happens when you undermine public education you feed
0: all of these all of these phenomena are interwoven. Yeah, yeah. There was a, just a, uh, one funny thing. When Betsy Device had her first day on the job, she sent out a tweet saying, you know, first day on the job, now where's my pencils? And someone tweeted back, oh, sweetie, don't you realise educators <laughs> have to buy their own pencils? <laughs>
1: <laughs> now, we might conclude by, um, well, talking about the future, but also about the past. Um, so I might ask, look, how would you evaluate... I mean, this is a very big question, but we'll... Um, um, how would you evaluate the effects of the Obama administration on the lives of African Americans and, uh, and what, what feelings, fears, maybe hopes do you have for the next four years of this administration?
2: Um, I, I tend to take a, a large, a long-term view. I, I think that the Obama administration's impact will prove to be immeasurable in the sense that When I was growing up, the thought that we would see a black president was something that we we did not imagine, right? Uh, For my children, I have a son who is 20. I have a daughter who is 25. President Obama has normalized that. You know, when I was a kid, you know, it was thought, uh, there was a, a sports commentator named Jimmy the Greek, who famously went on television to explain why black people could not be the quarterback of a football team. <laughs> you know, we just, we lacked the intellectual capacity to serve as the quarterback of a football team. And here was Barack Obama, who was the leader of the free world and who served eight years scandal-free, which is unheard of in American politics, right?
1: And
2: it's really uh, coming into high relief right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so for, for my children, and I have a, a grand uh, grandson now, they are a part of a world where that's normal, uh, which I think shifts their perception of what's possible uh, in a way that, you know, maybe we didn't get all of the policy changes that we wanted. Maybe some of the policy changes that we had will be Reversed, maybe some of them, you know, will, will prove not to have been as, as substantial as we've hoped. But in terms of reshaping the narrative of what's possible, I, I think that the impact of that uh, will be immeasurable.
1: And the next four years, you do take a long-term approach. But uh, yes. well, what, what are you, what are your perceptions? I mean, we've spoken about DeVos, we've spoken about um, uh, Jeff Sessions.
2: It's time to talk about
1: that guy. <laughs>
2: uh, I watch the the news every day to get the latest on the Russia scandal. And uh, I feel like we are living in an Oliver Stone movie. <laughs> I can only say, I think that... When all is said and done, the movie about this time period will be awesome. (laughs) It it will be awesome. Uh, All I can say is, if if we make it to 2020 (laughs) with the same president, I will be surprised. (laughs) I personally will be surprised. So...
0: Well, it's probably all we've got time for. We're going to get you back uh, there to talk about um, what you think of Mike Pence's presidency in a couple of years. (laughs) (laughs) Kevin Miles, (laughs) thanks you so much for talking to us today. Today's podcast was produced by Theo Lehrer. Please keep an eye out for our next podcast, which will be a recording before a live audience at our annual conference this Friday. It should be on the feed next week.